We're uh, going to finish chapter two of James. And this is really kind of a part B to Ronnie's part A last week. And as we finish chapter two, this letter, James, the brother of Jesus, writes to churches. Um, We continue on with this theme of faith without works is dead. And so last week, Ronnie's message was about a said faith, a faith that is more about words than works, and that the two cannot um, exist. Genuine faith, if you will, and I'm going to use that term today a bunch, genuine faith can't exist without some form of works. And so the big idea today is this, that genuine faith is a living faith that is verifiable. It's a living faith that is verifiable. I I was thinking of this passage before we jump into James this week, and it's found in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. You don't need to turn there. But, but listen to what Jesus says to a group of people that have gathered around him and he speaks to them and he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now think about this. This is Jesus speaking, and he's telling a group of people, look, if you really are going to be a follower of mine, uh, someone who claims to be a believer, someone who says they love me, here's what it will look like. It's somebody that will be required to deny themselves. In other words, give up those things that you once lived for and now live for me. And he goes on to say, you pick up your cross daily. In other words, dying to that old self and pursuing the passions and priorities that are important to Jesus. And he says, they will follow him. I don't know about you, but there's an image that produces in my mind, right? It's not the kind of image where someone just simply knows the right words to say and then live as if those words have no impact on their life. Matter of fact, I think in Christian circles, we've been too quick to just do altar calls or things like that and tell somebody to repeat this prayer. Maybe write it in the front of your Bibles and now go off and live however you want. And I say, I'm not sure that's what Jesus ever said. And so James, Jesus' brother, is kind of picking up on this concept, if you will. I want to stress something this morning because the verses we're going to look at seem pretty contradictory. And I don't want you to misunderstand what we believe here at Substance Church. We believe that salvation is solely a work of God. Don't miss that. It is God's work and his intent and his decision to save people. It's Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection that provides the only means of salvation. We affirm the scriptures say that. We believe that. We teach that. Yet that does not mean a person simply believes and that is some kind of a mental thing 
that makes it the end. We teach as well that a genuine faith is one that has been observant in a person's heart by a transformation of their heart. Now, as James writes to this early church, think about it. Jesus has not been gone long. James, Jesus' brother, is now writing to a group of churches. This specific letter addresses more of a Christian group of, uh, that's gathered that are mostly um, Jewish in their faith background. And in the early church, it wasn't long before um, false gospels started to show up. Satan took every opportunity to distort the true gospel that was provided by Jesus. And here's what I mean. And it's important you get this as we move forward with our verses this morning. One group that was assaulting the gospel was a group of people called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers <clears throat> were a group of Jewish religious folks who taught that you had to convert the Jewish faith to Judaism first before you were eligible to then become a Christian. Okay? And so there was this works aspect. You had to do these things and these traditions and become Jewish before you could become Christian, obviously distorting the gospel. But then there's this other group, which I think James was more heavily speaking about in this letter, called the Gnostics. Now the Gnostics, um, and stick with me, I'm not going to camp out here long, but the Gnostics believed that true salvation came from secret knowledge. That you were given some secret knowledge and then you were able to believe and then you could follow Jesus. But until you got that secret knowledge, they were an isolated group. But they also believed that all physical matter was evil. So everything was corrupted by sin, which is true. But here's where it got wacky. Since everything is sinful and corrupted by sin, you could live however you want because it didn't matter as long as you had this secret knowledge. And I think as James goes through these verses, he's addressing the group of Gnostics that had infiltrated their early church and distorted this balance or this understanding and faith and work. So he wants to make sure those who profess faith in Christ understand devotion to Jesus is observable in a person's life, and that validates a genuine faith. He wants to make sure in today's passage that people understand there's no disconnect between what followers of Jesus proclaim and how they live. Genuine faith is observable in true followers of Christ's life. That's what he's stressing as he writes to these Christians that the letter goes to. The point James makes is that genuine faith proceeds from a transformed heart that now seeks to glorify, live, and love Jesus. Don't miss something. Because as we dig into this passage, the word works shows up, 
And you can get off track pretty quickly and think about works in terms of a specific thing. And James is saying works is not a specific things. He's addressing a heart that produces the wrong kind of thing. He goes on to say that genuine love for Jesus cannot be hidden. And so dead faith, if you will, this morning, and I'll reference that from last week's message. Remember, this is part B. Can I have a piece that looks on the outside pretty genuine? But observing and walking with someone that has dead faith will prove out that they truly don't know Jesus. And the funny thing about this as we dig in this morning is someone with dead faith can look pretty good. Because people with dead faith can learn how to sit in church and sing songs and memorize the Lord's Prayer or recite certain things and yet not have a transformed heart. I think James is writing to two groups, if you will, and then we're going to dig in this morning. One is a group that maybe have never truly known Christ never had their heart, if you will, made alive as we sang. And he could also be writing to a group that have made that profession of faith, but they live as if their faith is dead. And he's calling them back to live like a genuine Christian. So this passage this morning is not teaching that a person has to work in order to earn salvation and acceptance to God. It's not saying that God keeps some kind of a ledger and counts your good works. No, this passage is saying genuine faith is observable because a person that loves Jesus lives like they love Jesus and shows they love Jesus. And so let's open our Bibles, if you're not there yet, to James chapter 2. I have six short verses that we're going to dig into this morning. James chapter 2, we will start in verse 20. We're in the ESV version, if you're on a device. Please read along with me. Do you want, uh, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's the part that gets a little confusing, so stick with me. Hope to clear that up for you this morning. Verse 25, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, So also, faith apart from works is dead. Again, 
Think, if you will, of two groups that James might be addressing. One who really has no faith at all, who's been caught up in a tradition. The other is someone who has faith, but their uh, their faith is dead. It's not alive. They're not living it out. So first thing I want to say is when we look at verse 20, genuine faith exposes the foolishness and uselessness of dead faith. That's that's what verse 20 is pointing out here. Genuine faith exposes foolishness and uselessness of a dead faith. He wants to point out that a life void of evidence of love of Jesus is foolish and useless. Now, since we're picking up on part B from uh, part A yesterday, it's important that we look back to verse 19 just a moment. Please do so with me. James, again, has been talking about dead faith. Verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder which sets up verse 20 that we just started with. But you have to connect that because there's two things that that you need to make sure you understand that connect to today's verses. First, he's trying to point out how foolish it is. That's why he uses the word in verse 20, to just think you can utter some words. He says the demons understand who Jesus was. They believe he lived. They believe he died. They believe he's the savior. But it doesn't do them any good because they're destined for hell. And so he's saying, look, just like the demons can say they believe the right things, it's not impacted their hearts. So mere words don't transform hearts. And the other piece that's important in here to pick up as we study this morning is when he says, you do well, you believe God is one. He's pointing to this well-known practice of the Jewish faith that began back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that Jesus taught in Mark chapter 12, uh, and also in Matthew and Luke, which in the New Testament is referred to as the great commandment. That started off with, you believe God is one. What does God require of you? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And James is saying to this Jewish audience, yeah, you know that which was taught in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They repeated that twice a day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Twice a day. It became this religious ritual This tradition that they were really good at keeping and saying, but was void of any love of God. And so he's pointing to the fact that, yeah, you know how to say the right things. But that doesn't mean you really love Jesus. Don't be friend or don't be fooled this morning. God's more concerned with your love for him than you being able to repeat a right doctrine. You hear me? God's more concerned this morning that you know him and love him than you can repeat a right doctrine. I'm not in any way saying you shouldn't repeat right doctrines. I'm saying we get this order out of whack if we're not careful. So in verse 20, he says, you want to be shown, you foolish person, 
That, that's language that, that says, hey, you really don't know what you're talking about. You, you've been tricked. You've been deceived. That was part of Ronnie's message last year, or last week in his verses. A dead faith is a deceptive faith. He says, you're foolish if you believe this. You don't have a clue what you're talking about. And so he calls them out about genuine faith. James says, how foolish to trust in something that is of no use to save you, that is useless to save you. I get a kick out of uh, watching commercials nowadays as we get close to Christmas especially, but um, have you seen the Peloton commercials? You know, they're on there all the time. This is the season. Buy a stationary bike and, you know, watch somebody yell at you because you're not going fast enough. It's nice abuse, right? Uh, but they'll put a little screen up, it looks like, and you can ride through a canyon or the woods and the instructor's telling you to go faster. And I think, that's, that's good, right? I mean, it'll give you a workout. It'll help you get in shape. But if somebody says, hey, Jeff, meet me in Brookside Park and we're going to do a 10-mile bike ride today, my Peloton is useless, Right? I mean, it, I'm not going anywhere with a stationary bike. It's, it's there. It's an imitation of a real bike. And so James is saying, if you will, a dead faith is like that. It's unable to bring about a living faith. And so he was wanting to make sure right thinking People don't think right thinking comes simply by repeating empty words and phrases. Because right thinking cannot transform a sinful heart. But listen to me. A transformed heart leads us to right thinking. You see the order? And so if we're not careful, too many of us spend most of our time working on right thinking or knowledge and yet simply don't know Jesus. James says, hey, you want me to show you how foolish it is to think that you only need to say the right words? Well, I'll show you and he'll give us some examples in a minute. But I want you to recognize this morning this was the very thing that Jesus battled with and against. In Matthew 15, verse 8, Jesus is being attacked by Pharisees and Sadducees. He had just healed some people, and now he and his followers were getting ready to eat, and the religious leaders said, hey, you don't follow the tradition catch the word, of the elders. You guys don't wash your hands right. You don't even wash your hands maybe before you eat. You don't follow the right tradition. And Jesus says this to him. And he quotes Isaiah. And I think the um, mode in which we read these verses that Jesus responds with indicates he's pretty angry. He quotes Isaiah that says this, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me in vain. They do worship me. 
teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. With their lips, they honor me, but their hearts are far from me. You know, James is saying the same thing that Jesus said here. You can say the right thing and follow the right tradition, but your heart can be far from Jesus. Have you wrongly believed that all you need to do is believe the wrong things? Have you wrongly made your faith mostly about knowledge about Jesus instead of knowing Jesus? Second thing that I want us to look at are verses 21 through 25, and it's this, that genuine faith is exposed by the hypocrisy of dead faith. Genuine faith is exposed by the hypocrisy of dead faith. See, genuine faith being observable will prove out, will validate that someone loves Jesus. Dead faith lacks any proof, therefore it is hypocritical. John Calvin, a famous theologian, said this, it is faith alone that justifies but the faith that justifies is never alone. Let me say it again. It is faith alone that justifies, but it is never, but it is never faith without some kind of works that justifies a person is following Christ. These verses that I'm going to unpack for us now. And this is the tricky part of this passage, so stick with me. You have to read these words and these verses in a context, or you're going to get wading down in um, a lot of things that are going to trip you up. These verses have to be read in context, and you have to understand the words that are being used. Here's what I mean. Uh, as a modern-day example, if I say to you... Um, hey, I'm going to run to Target. Do you need anything? What comes to mind? I'm going to Target the store, right? The department store, Target, or whatever. What do you, it's not department store, what's it called? It's Target the store, whatever. Um, and, and if I then say to you, hey, watch very closely so you hit the Target, you're going to think that I'm talking about some kind of an act of shooting at something that has a target. And then if I say, hey, did you watch the football game yesterday and so-and-so's best flavor, uh, player was kicked out of the game for targeting, that has a completely different context. Are you with me? Or did I just completely mess this up? You're with me. So in, in the verses we're going to look at, it's, it's just like that. You have to understand the context and how the words are used so this makes sense. Again, there's going to be three words, believe, justified, and works. Then I want us to make sure we understand in context so you grasp this, pos uh, this passage. James is not saying that we have to work along with our faith in order to be justified. He is saying because we are justified, our works make it evident and prove it to be true. Okay? 
So three words that I want to make sure you understand in these uh, verses 21 through 25. Very important this morning. Faith is the one word. It obviously means a trust and a devotion to Jesus, but in our Western world, if you will, we've turned that into a mental agreement or an academic acceptance of an idea. Faith does not mean that in this context. Faith is the convicted, surrendered, and devoted heart of a person who loves and follows Jesus. Something that uh, because they so deeply love Jesus, they believe to be true in a way that it changes the way they live. That's the understanding of faith here. Second is the term justified. That has two meanings in scripture. The first meaning is that this is a legal declaration by God proclaiming someone to be innocent, claiming their debt paid, By God, it's a declaration that God professes and gives, okay? It has a legal turn, and and sometimes when we teach this, it's just as if they never sinned. But justified also means to look at someone's life and see proof that they're justified, okay? It's like target. See how you use the words differently? Justified The second way is what's used in this passage that James is talking about. So it completely doesn't contradict scripture. He's saying there's a demonstration of a transformed life that we see that proves they are justified. And then lastly, uh, works shows up here. And I want to make sure this morning you understand when... um, This portion of scripture is talking about works. It's not talking about specific actions. Okay? It's talking about the observance of a person's character, their passions, their priorities. In other words, a lifestyle that they live is the works that's being referenced here. Not specific deeds, but a pattern. So when you go back through this and you read it, let's try to do that for a moment. James is just pointing out in verse 21 that the observance of works proves a person is justified. A lifestyle of a person who loves Jesus proves that they love Jesus. And so he jumps into um, two people from the Old Testament to prove his point. One's a patriarch, one's a prostitute. That's kind of interesting. Hey, let's throw two exact opposite people in the um, mix here for me to prove my point. First one is Abraham from Genesis. Abraham told by God to leave where he lived with his people and go to a land I will show you later, God says. And so the first thing it requires of Abraham is, okay, um, am I gonna obey this? And he does. And as he starts to live on this journey. God says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to increase your offspring like the stars in heaven. You're going to be remembered in this faith 
You're going to be well known. And so as he's on this journey of um, living and obeying God, he encounters a couple of things that he just fails fl- or falls flat on his face in. First, because there's a drought, he goes through Egypt, and uh, as they're going to Egypt, he tells his wife, Sarah, that, hey, as we go here, you're a beautiful woman, and I need you to lie and say that uh, you're my sister so they don't kill me. What? Uh, That's not a guy that's necessarily a, uh, a, a great example of faith, right? If we go on a little more, uh, God says at the age of 100, they're still childless. He says, you're going to have a child, Abraham. Sarah laughs about it. Matter of fact, uh, it didn't happen right away, so they take matters in their own hands. And um, Abraham has a child with the servant of his wife. Not an example of faith, folks. You went a little further as he interacts in this journey of following and loving God. God puts him to the test and says, I want you to go to Moriah, Mount Moriah, which is Jerusalem, and, and I want you to sacrifice your only son. Once they, Sarah became pregnant at 100, once that happened, now he says, if you're going to love me, I want you to go there and I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham's faced with a decision. Am I going to do that? Am I going to trust? Is my faith going to live lived out in such a way that people know that I love God? And he does. And he goes all the way to the altar with the son and God stops and says, no, there's a ram here. I'm not going to ask you to sacrifice your son, but you proved to love me. By the way, isn't that an ministering image of God that did not stop, who provided Jesus? And so he said, just like Abraham believed in God, and even though his works were not perfect, you look at his life, it's somebody that was righteous because he loved and obeyed. And then the second example is Rahab, the prostitute found in Joshua, when uh, Joshua sends spies into the promised land, says, go to Jericho, and the spies go in to see how dangerous it's going to be for them to conquer this land, and uh, Rahab the prostitute houses them. Um, the leaders of Jericho find out that the spies are there. They're worried because God might conquer them, and they hear that the spies are in Rahab's house, and say, bring me, bring me the spies. Well, she takes them on the roof and hides them. Says, well, they already left. They ran out the gate before it was dark. They're gone. And then she interacts with um, the spies and says, all of us here, and this is my paraphrase, uh, all of us here have heard about you, the real living God. And we've heard how you parted the Red Sea. And I believe you are the only God. And she believed that. And so here's two extreme opposite folks, if you will, that James writes about to prove his point about faith and works. One 
Abraham was not a shining example of perfectly obeying Jesus, or God, was he? No, he messed up. Rahab, a prostitute that's a Gentile, certainly not a shining example of someone who perfectly worked to earn their salvation, right? God is not saying in his word that you are not going to mess up and you're going to perfectly follow him and therefore will get salvation. But he is saying, if you do love me, there will be a lifestyle that's observant to the world around you that you love me. And so when these words justified and works and faith are used, you have to put them in the right context here this morning. A genuine living faith requires we stand out, doesn't it? It should mean that we're conspicuous, conspicuous, even in the times we fail. Third thing, and the last point this morning, and you look at verse 26, genuine faith exposes the fruit of dead faith. Genuine faith exposes the fruit of dead faith. So just in case James' readers hadn't picked up on what he's trying to hammer them with this morning, he just drops verse 26 in there on them. Look at verse 26. Here's how he ends He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dead faith has no authentic spiritual life. Dead faith has no power to save. Dead faith leads to eternal death. And so he uses the example of a dead person. You go to a funeral and you go and you see the body You don't expect the body to speak to you, to breathe, to interact. You know the body is dead, right? You know that even though you look at them and they look like the person you knew, that's the extent of life in them. He's saying it's like that in someone who has a dead faith. But a genuine faith is different. A person that is alive in Christ looks alive. There's no question. They're passionate about Jesus and the things Jesus was passionate about. They they prioritize the things that were important to Jesus and try to live that out in their own life. And they display a humble spirit that reveals a transformed heart. Again, James is concerned with the teaching, an imitation of the real gospel. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 6, verses 43 through 46. Jesus says this when he's speaking again to a group of people. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from bushes, nor grapes picked from bramble bushes. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Jesus is saying there's evidence in a person's life that they have a living faith. We shouldn't be so afraid to talk this way, right? We, we shouldn't be so afraid to say, well, I, I don't want to talk about expectations on the way I should live or the things that should be important to me. You know, that's judgmental. I, I think scripture speaks that that's in love we do that for one another. James is writing because eternal life is at stake. Agreeing with a type of faith that is dead is a fake and brings eternal separation from God. He's also writing to that other group I mentioned that maybe they're true followers of Christ but have just kind of let their faith look like a dead faith. And says, hey, hypocrisy, man, that's an affront to Jesus and the cross. When you stand before Jesus one day and you're dead, he's not going to ask you these kind of questions. What did you know about me? Or tell me about the Christian things you memorized or your religious traditions. How many times a week did you go to church? And how many hours per day did you pray? My friends, he will ask you, do you know me? And he's going to either answer one of two ways. I know you, or I don't know you. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, are a set of verses that are um, rather scary, I think, for us. And Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says some folks will then try to share all the good things they did. You know, I prophesied in your name. I did this as a Christian. And then he says, he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. They had a, a form of dead faith that didn't spring from a converted heart. So how does this connect to what Jesus is saying? Listen to me very carefully. It's impossible for someone with a genuine faith to not love Jesus and that love to be observable. Now listen, not perfect, not lived out perfectly. I'm not saying that. But it would be impossible for someone who really loves Jesus not to have some fruit. For that not to be observable. There'd be a pattern in their life. Why? Because when we confess and we repent and our hearts are reborn, the Holy Spirit now lives in us. And the Holy Spirit will hound you. It'll convict you. It'll remind you. It'll lead you. It'll teach you the things of Christ. It'll teach you to love the things of Jesus and pursue the things of Jesus. Again, listen to me very carefully. None of us do that perfectly. I'm standing here telling you in my life, I don't do that perfectly. We have ups and downs. Times we live passionately for Jesus, times we don't. But the point is, genuine faith will mean you're unable to stay in those times of not doing so well. As a matter of fact, 
the point that it does bother you is proof that you love Jesus or you'd be able to. So I don't want this message, and that's been my fear and my prayer now as I've wrestled through these verses, to be one of condemnation. That's not the point of this. But I want it to be one of correction, one of conviction maybe for us this morning. James wants us to make sure, and his readers to make sure, that following a true teaching of the gospel is important and lived out. So what do we do with these passages? Um, They certainly should bring a conviction to us. Uh, Do not misread or misunderstand what I said, I hope. That's been my prayer as well. Again, James is not saying your life must perfectly be lived out. You must perfectly model the perfect life of Jesus. He wouldn't say that and doesn't. Sin will always prevent us from doing that. He's saying that a genuine lover of Jesus will have a pattern of love and devotion to Jesus. So here's a few things I want us to think about, and then I'll invite the band up, and we're going to share in communion. But in closing, I want us to contemplate these. You might want to write them down, because I think they'll be a good reference for you. And here it is. What kind of heart does a genuine faith produce? What kind of heart does a genuine faith produce? One, it produces a desire to love God and continually surrender to him. A genuine faith produces, I can almost say that, produces a desire to love God and continually surrender to him. Not a one-time thing in your life but a pattern. Another is, a a genuine faith produces a receptiveness and a tenderness to spiritual things, a desire to grow and mature and become more conformed to the image of Christ. Another is, a genuine faith produces a pattern of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A desire to order your life around the things of Jesus. A genuine faith also produces a pattern of awareness in how the world sees their witness and their desire to represent Jesus. It's a concern for them. A genuine faith produces a pattern of repentance when they sin. There's an openness to conviction. A genuine faith produces a pattern of seeking forgiveness and restoration in broken relationships. A desire to model the grace and mercy of Jesus which they received. A genuine faith produces a heart, a pattern of being with and involved with other believers' lives, and desire to live out your faith in community, becoming a disciple who makes other disciples, who's willing to invest in people. And those are just some of the things, add your own. But these are worthy things to pray through and ask ourselves, aren't they? I'm gonna ask uh, the band if they'd come up now.
As you think about that list, maybe there's some things that are conviction to you this morning. They're worthy, as I said, to pray through them. Before we take communion, I'm going to reference 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, where Paul writes the church at Corinth and speaks to them about communion. And, and, and Paul writes in this that a person ought to examine their life before they take communion. He was very concerned that this didn't become some religious tradition. He says a person ought to examine themselves before they take communion. So I'm going to read four, four examples that you might find yourself in this morning. And then I want us to have a moment of silence because I want us to examine ourselves before we take communion. For some this morning, this has caused you to wrestle with your faith as you read the words of Scripture. Maybe you simply repeated a prayer one time in your life and wrote it down in the front of your Bible. It was genuine. You were really convicted that you wanted to love and live for Jesus. And I say to you, that was not the end, but that was the beginning. That was the beginning of your faith. Today, maybe you need to repent, not for salvation, but for disobedience, but, but for treating too lightly the cross and your salvation. For some, you're caught up in trying to work your way to being acceptable to God. Some of you here this morning are in fear and you work tirelessly because you wrongly believe this will make God happier with you. You, you work hoping to secure your salvation. You've never just had the faith that it's a settled thing. You've gotten James' order that he shared backwards. And so you try to work. You just need to trust in the work of Christ this morning and then live love, loving Jesus. A third group this morning, for some believers, what the scripture said this morning has brought conviction. There are areas of your life, maybe some attitudes, some actions, some passions, some priorities that need repented of. That, that you would be honest before God and say, I'm hypocritical in these areas. And the Holy Spirit is pointing them out to you. So you need to repent and ask for forgiveness of those hypocritical areas. You need to turn and live a more genuine faith in those things that are being pointed out. And then finally, for some of you, uh, you've been confronted with Christ for the first time. You, you know that you're separated from God and have never given your life to Jesus. And today, if you stood before him, he would not say, I know you. He would say, I don't know you. Well, this morning, now, this is a time for you to reflect on um, the gospel. Are you willing to surrender your life to him? Not simply praying a prayer, but 
praying and asking forgiveness and saying, I want to live for you. I want to move from death to life, as we've sang. Scripture's clear that if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe you find yourself in one of these four groups. And so, as Paul wrote, in just a few minutes, I want us to just be silent. Just be silent and examine our hearts 